Hooray, hurrah. Once again, the smartest man in the world, Proofcast, takes to the ether. This time on the occasion of John Lennon's 80th birthday, which was October 9th. And uh, a song that's so on the nose. Mm-hmm. Instant karma. Isn't that when you do something and then it comes back to bite you in the ass almost immediately? Huh. Sort of like denying that a giant thing existed and then having to... Hmm. Once again, we join hands and join hearts and try to find some solace in each other's company while democracy tries to write itself anew in three weeks' time. My name's Greg Proops, and this is my wife, Jennifer. Hi. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Good. How are you? Very well, thank you. After that delicious dinner that you made tonight of salmon and jasmine rice. That's right. I'm bragging. We're America's most annoying couple. Deal with it. (laughs) I love the drum fill. Right? This part. So good. Echo. The primal therapy part of this makes the song really good. That's the I'm screaming at the the universe. Um, John is a, a, an amazing Beatle um, and an amazing figure in American music and world history. Let's be honest. He, he over had to overcome so many deficits and so many faults. They really were from a crappy neighborhood and a poor family, mm-hmm. and he wasn't raised by his mom, and he was terrible to women, and he had, you know, every heroin, drink, whatnot, violence. But then um, the poetry and the uh, his common sense, when you listen to the long interviews with him that their friend did when they recorded all their telephone conversations because they were the most fantastically narcissistic <laughs> art project of all time, him and Yoko. Well, remember when we went to uh, the retrospective of Yoko Ono's career mm-hmm. at the Serpentine? It, it was so beautiful. You could hang a, your a, write your wish down on a piece of paper and tie it to a tree outside. Mm-hmm. But it also it, it included uh, the time that she was with John Lennon. And it was really moving. And I think... People didn't take her seriously for a long time because she was married to a beetle. Brilliant artist. And also, the thing that people would, if they saw her art, would understand a little more or give it a go. We've talked about Grapefruit on the show, the, her book, is that their sense of humor. Yes. They're really funny. Well, and we always, we always delight in uh, the glimpses. When John Lennon is, is doing his funny walk. Yeah. It's just hilarious. Yeah, he's always doing the crazy Ministry of Silly Walks. <laughs> and uh, obviously she got his sense of humor. She wouldn't have married him. And he, and she, uh, the first art exhibit that he went to was at a gallery in London, right? Mm-hmm. And she was on, uh, uh, she was the artist. Mm-hmm. And it was, a t- uh, as I recall, a telescope at the top of a stepladder. And you had to walk to the top of the stepladder and the telescope had written on it, look at, look here. And you, and when you looked in there, it said something like love at the end of it. Or, you know, you found what you're looking for. It was a conceptual piece. And that's when John saw her art for the first time and I, I think it was different than that but I'd have no well if you're going to say it's different than that speaker forever hold your peace because I'm louder than you I'm Mike Pence in a debate you're the one that didn't record yesterday's show all right full disclosure we're recording on two devices tonight because uh, uh, someone whose name rhymes with schmeg schmoops uh, either recorded the show and erased it in some sort of frenzy and or uh, halfway through the show too I remember looking over at the red light and seeing it was on and thinking in an overconfident way anyway we're going to try to do the show as good tonight even though um, Jennifer's already contested me on something that I'm 
almost certain is um, right in every detail. And um, no, I don't. I've forgotten a couple of the particulars, obviously. But I know that when he hadn't met her yet, he went to see her show, and that that was what he had to do. She required you to walk up a thing and participate. Well, and I, I think that uh, obviously the the two of them they grew together, and but she really helped him. What is she wearing on the video of uh, Instant Karma? Is that the cutting the clothes off, or is that that's another one? Because she famously yeah. had her clothes snipped off on stage with a scissors, and it. it's a very effective. She, and she moving. did it again. Mm. Anyway, it was his birthday, and he would have been eighty. It's it's hard to imagine. It the, was, Be- the Beatles were working class from Liverpool. Uh, the Rolling Stones. Not so much. Some of them, but not all Suburban. Yeah, middle class. Yeah. Well, the Beatles are rough and tough. My favorite Beatles story is years ago, Mojo did a roundup of Beatles stories. And Lemmy, who seems to pop up in every story, or Lenny, as Joni Mitchell called him, uh, Lemmy Kilmuster, who was awesomely in Motorhead, he, for a thousand years, uh, and had the greatest rock funeral uh, in L.A. history, I think. It was amazing. Ozzy was so shook up that he took uh, sedatives and couldn't speak at the funeral. And then what's his name? Uh, who was it? Not the guitar player from... We were discussing this last night. From, right. The, the bass player from Metallica, mm, Robert Trujillo. Right. Um, there was a amazing tale where he introduced Lemmy to Joni Mitchell... And I think the Troubadour. Right. And That's right. Joni Mitchell, you guys. And <laughs> Lemmy, by the way, huge fan. And, and Joni Mitchell turned to Lemmy and said, nice to meet you, Lenny. Yeah. And he didn't, he didn't stop her. <laughs> uh, he, uh, I believe, he wanted to know the opening chords of Coyote. Right? Which is so awesome. Yeah. But, so he had a story where he lived up north, right? And they would go see them in Chester, which is just uh, uh, above Wales. And... Uh, he said the Beatles would get up and Lennon didn't wear his glasses, even though he was pretty blind. And there's trigger warning. This has a terrible gay epithet in it. And uh, it was coming out weak and everything. I don't have to use it, actually. So the guy, guy yeah. goes, hey, John, you you're, an, you're, you're, an, you know, you're an F-bomb. And um, Lennon from the stage can't see him, the heckler, and goes, who said that? And the heckler fantastically, and this is the part of the story that I love that Lemmy remembered so well, goes right here, mate. And John Lennon jumps off the stage and slugs him, right? Because, but the guy identified himself. Like, that's how Liverpool it was. It was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to tell you who called you. Uh, that uh, you know, uh, And it's that, that story made me laugh. And it makes you think, uh, so the Beatles were um, different than we remember? They're mop top, yeah. lovable. Maybe um, they'd put the boot to you and shit. He, John Lennon uh, went to see her show in 66, and he was won over by a tiny painting on the ceiling, visible only at the top of the ladder, with uh, a magnifying glass, and it was the word yes. Yes. See, I remembered, I misremembered it, but I had the general gist right. You had to climb up a thing to yeah. in, get involved in this piece of art. So it required you. And then when you got there, it just said yes. And then if you recall, Mind Games, one of my favorite solo oh, jams, like says yes is the answer. Mm-hmm. And Some I'm kind sure of that's, druid dude. Well, I think they collaborated on everything. And I think they were close. And I think people... Uh, you know, always want to blame her and all that and victim, you know, that somehow she was in his clutches or something when I think he would have probably not had the kind of... Always sounded a bit racist to me. Completely. <laughs> his, his, his epiphany is that he became a much more rounded and 
concerned with bigger items than rock stardom. That yes. stopped, and he became an advocate for peace, and then he stopped being a rock star, which mm-hmm. is a real wild choice to make at 35. Yeah. You know, he made the one last record, and then... Uh-uh. Especially when... Uh, one of my favorite stories is uh, in Andrew Lug Oldham's book, where he talks oh, yeah. about needing needing a hit for the Stones. Tell who Andrew Lug Oldham is for the uninitiated. Well, he, he was the Stones' manager, and he, he because he had uh, studied at... at the feet of Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager. That's right. He worked for Brian Epstein. He knew that the, the secret was they had to write their own song. Yeah. And so he basically forced uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards to, to write, uh, hold up in their apartment and their flat. And then things weren't happening at the very beginning. And he waylaid... Paul McCartney and John Lennon. He booked a studio and the Stones were sitting in it. Yeah. And he went out on the street. And he found, they were driving they were by. Getting, they got out of, yeah. And he managed to waylay them and get them to come And they in. were half in the bag. They'd been to a right. luncheon. Right. They, a they Beatles were already, luncheon. Yeah. Uh, you know, being entertained as, as the, the life oh, of yeah, London. Oh, 63. They were huge. And they, they just casually gave them a song. Um, I Want to Be Your Man. Yeah. Which was their first hit. The Stones first hit. Number 15 in England. And they they sat down and said, evidently, and Paul and John and played it for him and went, "You can have this one, mate. <laughs> I want to be your lover, baby." Because this is one we they love. Throw, Ringo sings this one. crumbs <laughs> to the to the masses. Um, the, the Stones have never lied about that, though. The, the, they've always owned it, and they still play it every once in a while too, because they're cool. I mean, you know, everybody's a Beatles fan, and as Pete Townsend once said, "I'm a huge Stones fan." <laughs> uh, Anyways, it was his birthday, and uh, this moves us into some very awesome territory. We've had a lot happen this week, and we've got a lot to cover. But let's really get to what's important, Eddie Van Halen, and your story that contains... Uh, what's important. Yes, because I want our white fans, uh, uh, what's left of them, to uh, enjoy the show. We're going to talk about Johnny Nash and Bunny Lee and all the people that have uh, swirled into the heavens this week. Monica Roberts and Joe Morgan went up, but... Uh, Eddie Van Halen was beloved of a whole generations of people. Well, he came out when we, I was a teenager. I don't know how old you were. You were probably eight really, or nine. That, that's just weak. Um, <laughs> a lot of people don't. You're just joking now. A lot of people don't know that uh, he was born in Holland. He and his brother were born in Holland. and They're not they're, from Indonesia? Their mom oh. was Indonesian Dutch. Their oh. dad was Dutch. Right. And they are from... The Netherlands. And Holland is so Indonesian. And, and Indonesia and, is so Dutch. Uh, they uh, spoke fluent Dutch. Right. Uh, I don't think they spoke English, right? Until they were, like, caught here? I, I think he came over when he was eight or right. nine. Right, so third grade. And uh, they were in Pasadena, right. of all places. Ooh, you look weird and you speak Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> you know how Pasadena is but, welcoming. You know, that makes it a little bit more interesting. Well, they're exotic, aren't right? they? And uh, he had a pilot license. How colonial was that, by the way? I'm going to stop myself right there and just say when I just called someone an exotic. <laughs> I made really? I made them the other and I centered myself. You really did. Yeah, I just did. Um, uh, I have another story to tell you. Did I ever tell you about the time I was fighting off the Bantu? Wow. I turned into Commander McBrag from wow. the cartoon. Uh, this he- is the world of Commander McBrag. Eddie Van Halen also had three guitar-related patents and a pilot's license. The first guitar that they pieced together, to the best of my recollection, was famously uh, in the 70s. He took the fretboard from one guitar, 
because he didn't just want to play a Strat or, or a, 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 what everybody played, the Gibson. He he made a guitar that they called Frankenstein that had so that he could because he had all those techniques ready. He ran his fingers up the thing. He bumped the, the keys right. and whatnot. He didn't pick all the time. Which he said he got from Steve Hackett. Right, and the, he's as as innovative a guitar genius as you can be in the limited realm of metal. Let's put it that way. Yeah. They had hits. They at, one, at what point do you decide that you needed to be on wires? Across the you stage. mean David Lee Roth, like with his pants hanging down, flying across the stage like Howard Stern on a New Year's <laughs> show? Yeah, well, there's, there was this, the crude sense of humor kind of carried the day for my taste of Van Halen. And, and there's a, a scary uh, forethought of the poison band to come. Oh. With the, those kind of gimmicks. Midi tops and fingerless gloves and spinning there's the mic. There's going to be leggings. And, no, David Lee Roth was definitely an athlete up there. He kicked it. He, <laughs> he could do backflips and he could bend over backwards and all that. And, uh, you know, full credit. But really, let's be honest, then, the shredding of how shreddy Eddie is, is what... So, Neither of us ever saw them. You know, it wasn't my bag. No, this was, me either. In that era, I'll tell you for a fact, I remember the album really well. I think I you even owned it. You escape it. No, no, you it was on the radio. Escape just, it. Once they did Running With The Devil and You Really Got Me, that was those were really big hits off the first album. And David Lee Roth, famous Jewish rock stars. Oh, giant weenie, hairy chest, pants down to there, uh, chaps, buttless chaps. It was so gay. I'm from the Bay Area. When you saw them like flipping over backwards in buttless leather chaps, you're like, you guys, do you know what this seems like? But this is the L.A. thing. They yes. were like an L.A. party band. Yes. They were supposed to grind so hard that the record producers who signed them saw them at a gig where he, the guy says, there's 20 people there, it's a Thursday, and they were acting like it was fucking you know, the Hollywood Bowl. They threw down, I think, and they were loud. Also, they had a virtuoso in the band. David's yeah. a good songwriter, and Eddie's a great, you know, uh, guitar player. Literally. Right. We know uh, really good guitar players who were in awe of him. Uh, well, uh, 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 Dweezil and your friend... Um, Blues Saracino. Blues, who played in Poison. Oh, no, and Cream. <laughs> yes. He, he did time in both those bands. Uh, so when I was uh, in junior college, I was... Uh, really thin with just an enormous enormous amount of love to give and i uh was in a mime class because i took theater wow this just took a turn it's just the shit it's the story mime? so here's the plays we did because our school as we always talk about we did um uh what's the one about uh, emily barrett browning and her oppressive dad the barretts of wimpole street mm-hmm. and i played a square guy in that one that was a really weird play because this it's, is pretty rock right then, uh, Jean Owen, we used the Lark, where I played uh, the king, the Dauphin, mm-hmm. the one who gets and gets to be crowned at Reign because of Joan of Arc. She wins enough battles that he's actually crowned. And then he as turns her... As exciting a play as at my high school, we did Antigone. You know... Because what child doesn't want to see that? Let's center women, and then let's make sure that their life is nothing but crashing tragedy. <laughs> They triumph, but only because they have to die to triumph or whatever, right? Antigone, Jesus. Yeah, good fun. So, fun for uh, the whole family. Jennifer Grenholm, uh, mayor of, uh, uh, never, mayor of nowhere, fucking AG, AG of Michigan and governor of Michigan two times before Big Gretch, um, was in the play with me, both plays. And um, I took a mime class. So I thought mime was weak and lame, even when I took the class. But we have to, you know, we all took movement. You didn't, you didn't take performing arts as much as I did. I'm a show-off, and so I took all this shit. I was in musicals. I danced or sang. I still do, my goodness. Listen to me. Look, just a gigolo, and everywhere I go, that's what people are saying. 
<laughs> Something that we got. Pay for every dance. Ooh, what they're saying. There will come a day when youth will pass away. What'll they say about me? He was just a gigolo. In the end comes, I know. They'll get on without me because I ain't got nobody. <laughs> Dave Lee Roth. Same guy who wrote No, 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 No. Um, the, the video for that. Oh, Lord. Oh, God. Beedly, beedly, bop. Beedly, bop. What? Um, so I decided to really rock the class out. And I came in a black outfit and I put white rock makeup on. Maybe there was kiss influence. Mm-hmm. I'd seen them. Mm-hmm. Did you Sh- have the, the long, wavy hair? Yeah, this is long, wavy hair, Greg. Uh, skinny. Um, Very skinny. Yeah, really skinny. Th- slim-hipped. Um, so I came out and I air guitared. That was my mom. We did a presentation all the people did the stairs, they did the rope, they did the box, they did all the shit you do in mine. The girls did the thing, the guys did the thing. I decided, no, I'm going to have them play this song, ladies and gentlemen. And I... Eddie Van Halen. It has the, the subtle and gentle 19-year-old boy rock name of Eruption. Super subtle. Guaranteed to be a song that no women liked, except that he was cute. Oh, he can play. And this is where we... Um... What did they call the... He had to have that. He always had that. So it's like a spoiler on a car, right? Right. His car, his guitars always were way too gaudy. And anyway, I slid right off the stage. I was, you know, were you injured? Yeah, no. I no, nineteen, nineteen incident. No, I, w- I didn't wear my glasses because I wanted to be sexy, and so I was shredding as hard as I could air guitaring, and I slid on my knees and went right off the edge of the CSM College of San Mateo stage. How was that received? With great enthusiasm. I don't think... You'll find that when teenagers are together, when one of them is air guitaring and falls off the stage, people are pretty appreciative of that effort, I think. I don't. wouldn't call it my finest moment on stage. So I want you to tell your... Who hasn't wanted to, though, right? With their guitar. And then on the album, awesomely... Uh, we're not there, but on the album it goes. No, I was going to Elvis Costello then, and the English. No, English people a bit early for them. Uh, the Ramones, whatnot. Yeah. Um, uh, Donnie and I were going to a lot of shows. Uh, this is 1978. Anyway, I want to hear your story because it's way better than my story. My air guitar story? Yeah, yeah. Um, because your air guitar story has <laughs> substance and... No one falls off a stage. No, but there's famous people in it and that does a lot of the heavy so, lifting in you my know, opinion. As I said before, neither of us went to see Van Halen. <laughs> no. So this is my Van Halen story. What uh, was the heaviest metal band that you saw? Did you see anything even in the realm? Uh... No. You didn't see Aerosmith or nothing like that? No. No. Right. no. I saw Foghat. Does that count? 
That's Boo. Sad. Boo. Sad. Um, Talking so, about my... So I had forced Rex Ray to go with me to a Duran Duran concert in Concord. Please give me a little context on well, Rex Ray. There's a larger story behind this. But okay. Rex Ray is the amazing artist who swirled away five years ago. Mm-hmm. And impeccable taste in music obsessive i mean i think yeah. he left 40 you know like a, a, an insane number of albums and and then he, he also replaced all his albums with cds so he had almost a duplicate library and cds he yeah he had a, a whole other flat his studio yeah. and that was stuffed with albums he did have a groovy artist flat so so i got him to go with me to duran duran and and i remember he said duran duran yeah, and I was like, yeah. No, Duran yeah, Duran. Yeah, we're going. And on our way back... Okay, wait. You I'm not going to tell the whole story. All though. right. But, uh, no, okay. It's a, a long lot of people story. are wondering how yeah, well, we you too much were to able to. to go to, to we, a Duran okay. We have too much all to get right, to. All right. I'm just going to... This is the truncated story. Suffice to say that you were so, down uh, enough with Duran Duran that they took you in their van. Rex and I were in this minivan with... Uh, the other guitarist, the the touring guitarist, the backing singers, mm-hmm. and John Taylor. John Taylor, John Taylor? John Taylor from Duran Duran. No relation to Andy. And he was, we hadn't really spoken mm-hmm. at, the, at the show. He's a bit formal, right? And he was wondering what these interlopers are doing on his van back to the city. And by the way, it's how long from Concord back to San Francisco? It's over an hour, let's be honest. It's not yeah, the 40 so minutes. Yeah, so you're not, you know, I'm sure I, I totally understood on his part why he would not right. be chuffed that <laughs> there's some strangers in the back of the minivan. Right, you guys were pushed into the van and he what? Yeah, he was like, hmm. And so he, he um, turned around and asked me, mm-hmm. well, how do you know Simon Lebon? Did you say Simon LeBond, the lead singer of Duran Duran? <laughs> and I said, well, Simon thinks my husband is very funny. Oh, I love this part. <laughs> and, and so that, that made him a little bit, you know, That's more right, you guys. Ease. I'm down with Simon LeBond. It made him more at ease. And, and so then I knew what was coming next. So I said, I blurted out, my friend here, Rex Ray, did the album covers for the last few David Bowie records. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Then John Taylor oh, swirls around mm-hmm. in his seat and is quite interested indeed. It Then it went to uh, where should my son go to uh, study graphics in New York? What? Now he's teaching. Well, now he has to give an art recommendation? <laughs> yeah, it's like it went from like, what do you Let me guess. John had guys? all of the Bowie oh, albums that Rex had all the covers of the, to. He, yeah. Which he, is four, yeah, is it? Yeah. He had all the time to hear about all of that. One so, of them is the one where his head has got the different colored so eyes. So we went from like, you know, kind of yeah. austere frostiness. Who are these people? To cut to David Bowie's graphic artist, and then John Taylor's playing DJ. Mm. He's in the front seat, right? And of the bus back home. Yes, and it takes forever. Yeah, it's a, it's way longer. And than so you we've already be. explained, you know, yeah. who's who, uh, details, uh, Bowie. Now we're on to yeah. let's just listen to some music, right? Because we still have forty five minutes. It's like, to- yeah, and it's like one in the morning, and. One in the morning, really? 
Well, you know, Were getting you, back. Uh, had you uh, been, had you drank at all on this? Uh, yeah. You said Simon LeBond, so I'm guessing yes. Uh, Rex, Simon, and I had had some tequila. Okay. Some. Some. Uh, yeah. And then, uh, so we're we're in the minivan. You're going to have to tell the whole story some other night. Because <laughs> you don't really go, Simon LeBond and I had some tequila and then leave it there. <laughs> So so anyway we we're we're you know maybe half of the way there mm-hmm. and and Panama comes on What? And for real uh Rex Ray uh eminent music snob me who's never been to a Van Halen concert in his life who's never been to a Duran Duran no. except the one you went to Yes me music snob Right No you both are esoterica We are air guitaring furiously with John Taylor what? To the point where the other guitarist that's yeah. touring with them is just—he's just laughing. Right, the guy's been brought in to play. Yeah. all of it the was parts. Really nice. Yes, I don't remember his name. He was—he was—he was like. He was that makes the story it. even better. And just—he was just like, what, what, what is happening? And let me guess. You and John and Rex are headbanging. In? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That—that's my sordid tale. Not Jennifer. If you're about to rock, I totally salute salute you. you. (laughs) The wires across the stage. And the leopard. Is that goggles? Yeah, it's in the boombox. You're supposed to listen to Eddie here. This is what... If if there's a Led Zeppelin in the world... He throws a little more shreddy hard metal in, right? It's a commercial. Oh, this song accomplishes what it sets out to do. <laughs> There's no broken promises. And Eddie's so cute there. The snuggling. Right. That makes some fun and not speaking. Get that thing out of my face, baby. One smoke rings to the tux. What I'm trying to get to is uh, yeah. the guitar solo, because uh, that's where Eddie Van Halen always proved himself, like on Beat It, like on a lot of records. He is uh, shred-tastic. That's Chuck Berry there. Yeah, I feel running kind of hot tonight. Oh, God. Yeah. No, make it stop. Uh, Eddie Van Halen is most certainly 
in that jam band in the sky, uh, shredding like the very demon of guitar that he was. I'm going to plug a couple shows here, okay. my precious love. And then I got a lot of political ones coming up and I got a lot of um, comedy shows coming up. And I think you're going to dig it. I was, uh, where's that? There it is. Uh, ben Glebe and I, the Glebling, are doing a show on uh, October 17th, uh, and that's a comedy show. We're going to improvise an hour or two or three or four of comedy. Uh, that's October 17th. You can go to gregproops.com. It's all there laid out in front of you, as clear as day, as smart as the clanging of a chime at Notre Dame. The 30th, I will be back. Um, Jennifer will be near me. Be near me. Be near uh, but uh, I will be on the mic. Uh, Greg Proops, uh, smartest man in the world. I actually read my own name there, which uh, kind of surprised me even <laughs> in its douchiness. Smartest man in the world live podcast recording. That's October 30th. All Hallows Eve, Eve. What's the political stuff, Greg? Thanks for asking. On the 15th, or rather, the 15th, which is just this week. I'm very excited about this one. Me too. Thursday. Uh, we've joined a super pack because uh, we were in contact with various forces in the democratic world. And we've ended up uh, doing something I think is really worthy. Lindsey Graham, as you know, is co- uh, one of the chairs of the Judicial Committee. And we're having the farce of a sham of a mockery of a sham of um, yes, running a are. bizarre Christian through to um, uh, impact our courts. And they're, they're all freaked out about it because they think that's the only way they can win. And on the other hand, they know they're going to lose because they're in double-digit you know, deflation. Well, wasn't it always about uh, them packing the courts? Yeah! Which is why they're accusing now, Democrats of doing what the same. we're going to do when we get in is not pack the courts. We're going to expand the courts. Yeah, uh, Lindsay must go uh, is what it's called. It's a uh, you can go to Act Blue. You can go to my website. I've got it posted up there. October fifteenth, twenty twenty, at seven o'clock EST. That means it's four o'clock Proops uh, Democratic time. We have an awesome show. Uh, the moderator is uh, a, a state representative from South Carolina named J.A. Moore. Mm-hmm. And he's a, a, a activist. His sister was in that terrible, terrible tragedy that happened at the church. Emmanuel. And it's forced him to, uh, it, it, it compelled him, I think, to take more action than he would have. On the show with us, you guys, is Bradley Whitford from the West Wing, Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall, Colin Mokery, uh, Mockery, uh, from the Who's Line uh, television program and our Aisha Tyler. And I couldn't be more proud of everyone who's doing it. Um, I uh, was really happy that Colin and Dave and Aisha uh, agreed to do it. They got mm-hmm. Bradley Whitford. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. It's going to be a great event. We're going to riff. Uh, there's a VIP thing you can do for... It's, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to get rid of Lindsey Graham. Jamie Harrison raised $57 million in the last three months. That's more than any Democratic candidates ever raised, any Senate candidates ever raised in a quarter. But, you know, Act Blue is getting all these grassroots donations from around the country, and it's really taken Republicans by surprise. And Lindsey Graham has been complaining about it. He was complaining about it at the debate with Jamie Harrison. Uh, He refused to debate him again because he wouldn't take a test, Mm. a COVID test. But he... I think that they're really alarmed because people from other states are giving to Jamie Harrison. And Lindsey Graham thought that he had this. He, uh, Jenny Harrison went from what five seven points behind to I don't even think they're tied now. I think he's ahead yes. several points, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, 
All but of these every, things are up for grabs. Every bit helps. Every vote counts. I mean, this is a big deal. And uh, tonight... Uh, Imagine removing um, Lindsey Graham from the Senate. Oh, my God, it's huge. How important that is. He would be off the Judiciary Committee, yep. which is amazing. Um, and I got an email tonight about that Adrian Perkins for Louisiana, mm. Reverend Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Mike Espy in Mississippi, yep. Marquita Bradshaw in Tennessee, and Jamie Harrison in South Carolina are all black Americans mm-hmm. running for office. And to get them into the Senate and to Congress is huge because Cory Booker is the only black man in the Senate. Right, and Kamala. And he, by the way, he's right, but black man in the Senate. Um, Cory Booker is up for re-election in New Jersey. Well, Tim Scott's a senator, but he's a Republican. Yes. But yes, he's the, but he's the only black senator that's a Republican. Um, he is up for re-election, but we're not as scared of his seat. We repeat the people that you said before. It's Perkins for Louisiana. Adrian Perkins, who is a mayor of Sh- Shreveport mm-hmm. now, he's running for Senate in Louisiana. Reverend Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Mike Espy. Uh, is Warnock's running. running against Kelly Loeffler. I just want yes, to say that. Yes, which is really important that he win. Um, Mike Espy is running for Senate in Mississippi. Marquita Bradshaw in Tennessee. And Jamie Harrison in South Carolina. We can really change all of this. Uh, so come along on the night. It, it's me and Aisha, Colin and Bradley Whitford, and Dave Foley. Yeah, it's an all-star bloody lineup. And uh, that's uh, the 15th, this Thursday, uh, 7 o'clock Eastern. Then I have another gig uh, before, uh, right after the Ben Glee gig, the night after, on the 18th. Um, Jim Turner's an old friend of mine. Jim Turner was Randy of the Redwoods. He was in Ducksworth Mystery Theater. He's a comedian. He played on Arliss for, oh my God, the whole run of the bloody show. And he was always a hill cat. Staunch. Hillary Clinton supporter. This guy is a Midwestern Democrat, man. Like, you know, old awesome. school. The first time I saw him play, I was probably 18 years old. We went to Stanford in Palo Alto to see his comedy group and they did punk poetry and we thought they were the living end, right? We were like 18. Uh, Jim is a friend of ours and a really good guy and he's Iowa through and through. And so this is called Blue Corn, Flip Iowa, Save the World. What it is is a fundraiser um, to support the Iowa House Truman Fund, which is going to do all down ballot. Um, everyone running in the Iowa House. So we're trying to flip the Iowa House. What they didn't, what the Republicans didn't expect was that there would be an examination, mm-hmm. case by case, by people who are at home more during a pandemic that have nothing to do but study and focus on the matter at hand, and that, that these fundraisers are making it easy to help flip seats. In states where it will it will save people health care, it will I, provide vital yeah. relief. Yes, I don't I don't want to sound like I'm making myself uh, important in this. These events that we're doing and everything, we were really uh, glad to do and everything. But there's so much movement at the very top of this that they're moving zillions of dollars to the Democrats right now, Today, which means they can do arm themselves with lawyers. And all of the things that are required to make this election go correctly. Right. So I wouldn't freak out as much as the doom scrolling leads us all to believe. Well, I'm not minimizing it. I'm just saying. Well, it's so fo- focus people. Focus on what we can do. Can you I know? read a couple and of the categories? I was just going to say, 
Today, CNN said Biden is polling better than any challenger since 1936. Mm, who's in 30? What? And... In the 21 previous presidential elections since 1936, there have only been five challengers who led at this time. Of those, only Bill Clinton in 92 was ahead by more than five. Bill Clinton was not a done deal. Ross Perot made that happen. Here are the levels, though, and this is why I thought it had such a good sense of humor. The Blue Corn event, which is on the 18th at 7 o'clock Central, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Proops Daylight Time, is a bunch of comedians are going to audition to be in the Iowa State Fair. But these are the categories of the tickets. Uh, the corn dog, the funnel cake, the blue onion. For anyone from the Midwest, you'll recognize all of these. And the South. Do you know what a blue onion is? No. You know what a funnel cake is, Yes, right? I do. A blue onion is like a deep-fried affair. I deep can't even... Deep-fried onion? Yeah. A pickle dog, a pickle... I can't even. Oh, Lord. A turkey leg. A turkey leg is exactly what you think it is, but probably thrown into a deep fryer. Um... Applicious. I don't even know what to say about that. I'm guessing it's some kind of apple affair. Deep fried Twinkie is precisely oh. what you think it is. Was there a land bridge to uh, Glasgow? Yeah, I was going to say Scotland and Iowa. <laughs> Turner, Jim Turner, James Turner. I, uh, everyone in the Duxbury Theater is named McCluskey. Uh, there was a land bridge that connected them, and it was built of deep fried Twinkies. Uh, the, the categories made me cry laughing because it's exactly what you would get at the Iowa State Fair. Oh. In San Mateo County, you would get like a cheeseburger or whatnot. You know, I went to a million fairs in California. But we were in California, so it was a corn on the cob, that one, you know, where the, you can smell it, the onions, whatnot. But we never had pickled dog or funnel cake. We had cotton candy, and the oh, guy would swoop always, it up with always. the thing, remember? And it was filthy, and you ate it anyway, and your face turned purple or pink or whatnot. Uh, so the, do the, come to those. I think I've covered everything. Now there's one more. Uh, who's live anyway? Uh, we're back, not on the road, but on the virtual road. We had Drew Carey as our special guest last time, but we're going to have special guests this time. It's November 14th. It's called the uh, Improv Master-ish class. Ryan Stiles, uh, Joel Murray, and um, what's his? Really? Jarrett. Jeff, uh, Jeff Davis, uh, uh, it's $7.50. That's a bargain. Thank you for saying that, Jennifer. It's also a $2 service charge. What? So it's $9.50. We had a really good time last time. Um, we had Drew on, we riffed, we do improv, we had a special guest. Uh, we had two special guests, we will again. What makes it so special that I should barf up nine fifty for this, Greg? Well, I'm glad you asked. One, we do improv and shit, and Ryan's there. But two, yeah, I said that. But uh, two, um, it's short. Ah, but also, it's it's a lot of uh, very professional hams who've been trapped at home. Mm. And unlike Joel and Jeff and Ryan, who are lazy, um, I've <laughs> been honing my craft every week on a whetstone so that it is as, uh, uh, what did the Sex Pistols say? As uh, as sharp, a bright as a sharpened skein. Yeah. Because I want to be anarchy. I get pissed. Destroy. Uh, that one you can go to gregproops.com. It's also at House Seats is the name of the platform. House Seats.live. House Seats.live. House Seats.live. November 14th, me, Ryan, the whole thing. Do you want to do this one first? Or do you want to do Monica Roberts? Uh, either. Let's do Bunny and then we'll do Monica Roberts because Bunny's got a lot of great Great jams. 
Will you uh, take us into the bunny stalker thing? I will when I find. Let me just spin one first, and then we'll. Right. Everybody needs love by Slim Smith. I love this sound. It's also uh, a favorite number for Rex. Jamaica is so extraordinary. The innovation that went on in the face of no money, no funding, no having to make deals with people that were crazy, Bunny Lee and Toots. Well, with no financial investment. And studios made of egg cartons and, 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 you know, improvised. Well, and the beautiful thing about vinyl, you can melt it down and go again. And they put records out on the night and send them to the club and everybody would go to the club that night and hear the record and they go, I need that record and whatnot. It's the most immediate and moving music scene that, well, maybe that's why it's so goddamn enduring. Here, give me a little Bunny Lee, Jennifer. Um, Bunny Striker Lee was a founder of reggae. We, we mm. gave a eulogy to Toots Hilbert the other uh, week. Like Little Richard, I think you can keep coming back to his right? library till the Toots, end always, of time. Always. Um, Bunny Lee was a legendary producer. He was only 79. He set up his own record labor, label where he produced hits by Delroy Wilson, Slim Smith, who he really adored. That was, and, by the way, the one we just heard was Slim Smith. Yeah, and Peter Tosh. Uh, according to Ooh. yeah, Peter Tosh. Uh, according to Ben Beaumont Thomas in the Guardian, uh, he worked started working with King Tubby in the early '70s, helping to pioneer the echoing, eerie sound of dub. Here's our King Tubby. He was one of the first producers to work with Bob Marley and the Wailers, Sly and Robbie. He was known for his snappy dress sense. You have to dress to match what you are doing. Cleanliness is godliness, so you always have mm. to look good. There is a on YouTube. You can watch a documentary about him and other uh, roots artists of reggae called "I Am the Gorgon" from 2013. The Gorgon. It is a hilarious voice. In other words, you have to cut my head off to. According to Caribbean Weekly, yes, Caribbean I went Weekly. there. I was reading Caribbean Weekly. Um, Johnny Nash and Bunny Lee died within hours of each other. We're going to talk about John, Johnny oh, Nash as well. Yeah. Um, it's a huge blow to the whole scene. Uh, Bunny Lee seemed like a real... Uh, well, he, he was like a, a, a father figure who had a stable of people that he looked after and really cared for. An amazing innovator. Here, let's dig a little uh, King Tubby. Every drum drop and every guitar stroke is a an opera. Also, if you watch that documentary, you will understand of the hardships that are yeah. going on in their lives as they're making this really lovely music. It's astonishing. Bunny Lee is wearing a yachting cap. <laughs> um, St. Peter already had his name in the book, so he got a table right down front. <laughs> and, by the way, the beak is on.
What an awesome fade out. Are we going to talk about wow. the uh, the first in a lifetime? Uh, yeah, please. Vice presidential I want to hear about debate. This. Uh, yeah, I, let, I, let's get into that immediately. The first time <clears throat> a black woman, the first time an Asian American woman was at a vice presidential debate. Allowed to attend can, the highest candidate. debate in the land. And she had to keep saying, I'm, I'm speaking here uh, because Mike Pence kept interrupting her and Kamala Harris kept her cool. Mm-hmm. She was just phenomenal. I, I loved it. And the truth is, people loved it. It got huge ratings. Uh, Everybody, 57 million people watched it. No one's ever watched a vice president. You know, they always played the vice presidential debates down, but a lot of wild things have happened at vice presidential debates, including Jerry Ferraro, including Lloyd Benson yes. saying to Dan Quill, I was a friend of JFK and you're no JFK. And she shutting him down with the I'm speaking. And then she went, so we can have a conversation, right? And he went, okay. He acquiesced to her. And then there was the fly. The fly got a lot of attention. <laughs> right? The the fly... You know, Dare I? But she should have gotten more praise. As, um, yeah, no. There's no question. I mean, as we were saying before, there are only uh, three black people in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Tim Scott. And there's only been four women that and were allowed to debate at the executive the level. the only black yeah. woman in the Senate. And it should be a much bigger deal. Mm-hmm. And the first Asian-American. And covers the Caribbean yes. because of her father. Right. So her Jamaican father. Uh, people in the Caribbean, I think, are, are uh, Caribbean-Americans are really excited. This is a very big deal. It's a huge and, deal. And, and, and it's historic. Anyone that plays it down, it's like, to me, echoes of Hillary winning the popular vote. Like, right. Oh. Really? Oh, you know, she was overprepared. What? No. It's super racist to not think that having that representation from all those different places in and someone's background is too. makes it just sensational. Yeah. For the country... And for progress and for the future and for what needs to be, as Jennifer always says, nothing uh, without representation. Shirley Chisholm said, it, uh, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. You well, know, and also you have to see yourself in order yeah. to uh, uh, the yeah. effect she's had on young girls of color in our country. There is. She, and also, she's awesome with kids. I was going to say we've seen her with kids. Yeah. And and she's. She took so much time with two little boys that were ahead of us in line at the will turn. She did it all. And, you know, getting down to their level, you know, yeah. kneeling down to them, talking to uh, them communication. seriously. Like they were, you know, important people. I prefer guys who shout a lot and wear makeup that only goes to their ear line. Right. And never, ever say anything true. <laughs> It's a hoax. That makes me feel better about myself. Uh, no, she's just she's amazing. Well, and also in her it, ability sorry. to communicate. No, sorry. It, it opened with the debate. Opened with the Susan Page, the moderator, talking about Mike Pence was on the COVID task force. Yeah, that meets like once a week now or whatever. That we're now up they to gave up on two hundred and fifteen thousand mm -hmm, dead mm -hmm, Americans. Mm -hmm. 
So we're up to World War Two almost. Why, why are there? We're literally getting at the yes, World War Two level. Yes, there are not uh, two sides. It, it's a, a death cult on one side, and there's hope and optimism. She, she, uh, Kamala Harris was on the cover of Elle magazine, yeah. and she was talking about optimism, and because she and Biden have plans, they have plans to get things done. I don't understand. What about magical thinking? You know, where things just happen because you think they're going to happen? I've been counting on that for so long. <laughs> no, the, uh, it, it's almost unimaginably important to push Kamala Harris forward, Kamala Harris. And she was fabulous at the debate. The debate, really, to me, I don't know what people are watching. And then I think, oh, right, I'm a man. Mm-hmm. And I have to look through the, the crooked, small lens of my weenie. Uh, at what men really are assessing when they watch women. I mean, really, is it? It's enough that Pence uh, doesn't shout like mm. the, like his master. It, right. It, he has one thing about him, and that's a modicum of decorum. He and he's interruptive, and he's lying. God knows what happens alone with mother. Oh, ick. But he speaks softly. Right. And that. And he has a fly on his head. Well, Jennifer, you saw The Omen, right? No, no, what's the one? Exactly. The Amityville Horror. Do you remember the scene in The Amityville Horror? There's two of them, but I'm going to take you back to the first one with um, uh, our uh, good friend, um, Barbara Streisand's wife. What? What? What's his name? He was in Hotel Pee Wee's Herman's Big Adventure. Did you say her wife? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. You can't say anything anymore. I'm so sick of cancel culture. You know what's happening, There is Jennifer? no cancel culture. Guys like that's me, the story. Guys like me are not White being White guys allowed. just keep... James Brolin. Yes. James Brolin and Margot Kidder are in the first Amityville Horror. And if you... It's a... I saw it in the drive-in, which is exactly what you should see the Amityville Horror when it came out in 1954. I never saw it. 1956, whatever. Anyway, uh, we went to the drive-in and we saw Amityville Horror. We might have had, you know, drugs. and Festivals of some sort. Right. And so there's a scene later in the movie where what the premise of the picture is, it's not you, it's the house. The house is all fucked up. Well, isn't that like Shirley Jackson? Right. Didn't she but cover that in The Haunting? So much more and so much better and in so much more literary fashion that actually uh, piqued your interest as an intellectual. I and, love Shirley and Jackson. Drew... Uh, Shirley Jackson does a special kind of American dread that I think only three or four American authors, Paul Bowles, uh, a ground pole. Didn't she kind of nail how awful white people are? I don't think there's anything more than the lottery. The lottery, (laughs) to me, is is what America is. I'd like to think that there's... Well, not. I don't mean in an optimistic viewpoint. I think in an Orwellian <laughs> landscape, Shirley Jackson's cold eyed, gimlet eyed about. Now I've completely blown the point of my almost unsurpassable. Are we going back story. to mime? No, we're not. All right, I'm moving on then, <laughs> since you can't remember. What I blamed Wait. you, uh, Joe like I Morgan. Said, I, I didn't. I didn't erase the. We're going to get a Monica Roberts in a minute. But, yeah, I was the one who erased it. Um, Jill Morgan is, was a ball player and an announcer and a personality and author, a guide, a sage, and a wizard of baseball. Um, Dave Stewart said he was one of the most important people in his life uh, today That's on lovely. Twitter. 
Um, Bob Kendrick at the Negro League Museum was, uh, as you recalled, uh, Joe Morgan hosted. Yes. Hosted. Buck O'Neill's memorial. Yeah. Also, uh, Joe Morgan was really close friends with Dave Winfield. Joe Morgan um, started in 63. I started being a fan in 66, 67. First games I went to probably 67, 68. I remember watching the 67 and 68 World Series. I'm so old that I remember when he didn't play second base for the Cincinnati Reds. Tommy Holmes did. And then he was traded to them and became maybe the greatest second baseman of all time. He was that good. He was always a threat to steal. And in the mid-70s, when I was 15, 16, he probably was the best ball player in baseball. And I'm counting Reggie Jackson, right? Joe Morgan could hit 25, 30 hammers, uh, score 100 runs, steal 30 bases like he was How tall was he? His nickname's Little Joe. I'm going to leave it to you how tall he was. The record says he's 5'7". I met him once in 1986. He was from Oakland, and the all-Oakland team is just the best. I won't go on and on, but I will say this about Joe Morgan. He was superb for every team he played for. And like Pete Rose, and this is a weird, I don't even know it's weird, but it's an apt analogy. Every team that he played for was better because he played on it. When he was on the Houston Mm. Astros and Colt 45s, he goes back that far. You mean like LeBron? James or Barry Bonds or Willie Mays or... The Lakers? LeBron James and the Lakers. Uh, Jennifer and I aren't LA fans uh, because we, you know, from the Bay Area and whatnot. But um, LeBron James is the most... But we're LeBron James fans. I can't think of anyone I admire more in the sporting world that is uh, obviously the the women, ten, you know. The, but his philanthropy. His philanthropy is unsurpassed. And so congratulations and hooray and hurrah uh, to the Lakers. He also went to several teams where he was the deciding factor in there. And that's why he came. Joe Morgan... Uh, was on the 75-76 Reds. And I got to, years ago, I got to do a, like the greatest team of all time. And the two greatest teams of all time are still the 27 Yankees and the 75 Reds with Joe Morgan batting third. And Babe Ruth batted third on the 27 Yankees. And I think that says a lot about mm-hmm. what we're talking about here. Cut to 1982. The Giants were in a, quite a good team that year because we got Joe Morgan. And uh, he, the year before, and he was playing second for us, and he hit, I think, 18 cranks, whatnot. Um, motivating. Joe Morgan's ethos, in like Eddie Murray, like Joe Morgan's ethos is what made teams better. It wasn't his skills at that point. He was 39. He carried on playing for four more years, by the way. Um, wow. Was It was that he brought erudition to the game like Willie Mays did or... or Ernie Banks, you know what I mean? Bob Gibson, he... A, a steely-eyed focus. I'm here to do what we're doing. So, in 82, the last three games, we were a game and a half out. It was Giants-Dodgers-Braves, and we lost this giant game by like a million runs. And we lost a game, uh, Rick Monday hit a grand slam of us, the night game. The next day, we lost by a million runs. Last game of the season has no bearing, except that we can knock the Dodgers out of the division. And in the ninth inning, Joe Morgan came up and hit a home run. 
And it was my birthday, 1982, <laughs> October 3rd, 1982. And Joe Morgan, I got to meet him, as I said, four years later, why not? Uh, not only was he a superb baseball player and possibly... I don't even know who you threw up against him for best second baseman. A couple of Negro Leaguers and Charlie Gerringer. Uh, was an exemplary guy. Um, there's, uh, As Willie Mays said to him, you have to think about what you're doing. Did you leave the game better than you found it? Joe Morgan left the game better than he found it. That's all I'll say. Um... It's been a tough year if you're a baseball fan my age. Right? It's just been terrible. The last two weeks, even. Will you talk about Monica Roberts? Yes. She she was a, a titan, a, a pioneer. Um, she swirled away uh, uh, last week. Joey Guerrera in the Houston Chronicle describes her as a beloved trans activist. She was only 58. Oh, golly. She hadn't been feeling well, and her mother asked her to get a COVID test. So we, we don't know if that was why. She was one of the first bloggers to correctly identify transgender murder victims across the country. It was an, She had an award-winning blog called Trans Grio. Mm. And a, a Grio is, is someone in West African tradition who tells the history of your people, your families. Uh, we talked about Maury Conte, the musician. Right. Uh, and a verbal he, history. He was uh, a from a family history. of griot. Yeah. And Historians. And so it was so important that she talk about and, and give uh, respect to, for her, to give respect to these victims that were misgendered in the press. And she by the just cops, couldn't, by the press. By the press. She, she just couldn't take it anymore. No one was, was giving them their due. And it speaks to how vulnerable uh, the black trans population is that, that there would be a blog and, you know, come to pass to cover all of this. Um, other outlets look to her work for guidance. Mm. Um, last year, she told the Daily Beast that she took up the task because I got tired of them being disrespected in death. When you deliberately misgender a victim, that you're then you're delaying justice for that trans person who's been murdered. She described herself as proud, un, unapologetic, speaking truth to power. She was an original board member of Mayor Sylvester Turner's LGBTQ advisory board. And you remember uh, Mayor Turner spoke at George Floyd's funeral. Yes. He is the mayor of Houston. Mayor Turner called her a powerful voice for transgender rights, and he had City Hall lit up in the colors of the transgender oh. flag Friday night in her honor, pink, white, and blue. Oh. And this is really beautiful. Re Representative Sylvia Garcia from Texas, said Roberts was a giant in the movement for the rights and dignity of the transgender community. It was the honor of my life to fight alongside her when in 2017 we pushed back against the transphobic bathroom bill in the Texas Senate. Right? She gave me strength dur during difficult moments in that fight, and she inspire inspired me to be a better ally each and every day. Roberts herself told Mary Haywood at GLAD in 2013, I have no regrets. I wouldn't trade the life I have now for my life prior 
1994, I've been to the White House, met interesting people, given speeches, talked to politicians and college students about our issues. I've lived an interesting life since 1994, and I'm happy. I'm happy in my own skin. I don't know how you replace Monica Roberts. No, and I mean, gosh, she was, uh, I, I think, you know, Janet Mock said how much she influenced her, and she's just... Uh, an icon. She's swirling into the heavens. The universe will provide. What an important person. And what a beautiful person. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about Johnny Nash and then we're going to push off. May I mention Martin Jenkins? Oh, please. Um, are we recording? Fred? Yeah, no, yeah. Oh, that's so cynical. Is it really, though? Yeah. So, uh, really? our governor, Gavin Newsom in California. Yeah. I've heard of him. <laughs> he nominated Judge Martin Jenkins for the Supreme Court in California. Mm hmm. Judge Jenk- Martin Jenkins is the first openly gay and the third black man to be on the. Did Supreme he pull him Court. out of retirement? Yes, he did. He's 66. Um, U.S. District Judge Dalton Henderson said nobody stayed in the office later than Marty. He was intensely aware that real people's lives were affected by his rulings and wanted to make sure he got it right. Martin Jenkins grew up in Ingleside in San Francisco. He was a star football player at Santa Clara and then played briefly for the Seattle Seahawks before enrolling in law school at the University of San Francisco. He became a civil rights attorney, and Bill Clinton appointed him in 97 to the U.S. District Court in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Um, That was according to Bob Elgico in the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, Newsom says Jenkins is a man of inner strength, grace, and passion. Um, And Jenkins points out that it has been 29 years since an African-American man has served on the high court and that he wouldn't be where he is without the other two's support and mentorship. And he's replacing the first Chinese-American justice, Justice Ming Chin. And that's so important. Uh, Again, we're talking about representation. Making change. Also, um, kids, when you flip your uh, state's, uh, you know, lower house and higher house to Democratic and flip the governor, this can happen. This is what happens. Then you get this kind of August personage who will spend several years in the court or maybe 15, 20 years if we get lucky. Yes. 25 years and be a great voice for reason. Um. Speaking of uh, gay judges, um, Boys in the Band is on um, Netflix, and we watched it the other night, and it's really groovy. Oh, my God. I can't recommend it enough. It's the, it's the same director, Joe Mantello, and the same cast as the Broadway version uh, last year, and or year before last. What? And uh, our friend Mark Crowley what? is the playwright, yeah. and he's swirling in the heavens, and... He, he was on the set with them last year. and He's in the movie. And he's in the movie. He's in a cameo in the oldest gay bar in New York, which is... It's What's it very, called? Julius. It's, uh-huh. it's so touching. Um, the cast is just stellar. I mean, it's Jim Parsons, it's Matt Bomer, it's Zach Kinnow, it's Andrew Reynolds, uh, Robin DeJesus, 
Michael Benjamin Washington. They're they're all just, Chuck Watkins. Yeah, they're just wonderful. Charlie Carver um, and Brian Hutchinson. And you know, watching it as a film, it's so much different than as the play. You're you're drawn in the the pathos, the the uh, the dark side, the also, cutting wit. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's an intimate. Adventure, and then at the end, there's also an interview with them, an interview with Mart. Um, I he's someone that I love so much, and he would have been so happy to see this. Um, and I'm grateful that it came to pass. It's so awesome that uh, he was there to give win a Tony and go on stage and get it. And you were able to call him right after and whatnot. And like... Uh, I think I was the first person he spoke to after mm. when he got home. But, isn't but he it, didn't have a cell phone, that little... Of course he doesn't. That little monster. Luddite. He, uh, of course, it's just awesome that 50 years after he wrote something that he was able to get something so great. Well, and uh, to think that at, in your early 80s that you're, you're going to get a Tony and a play and a movie... Yeah. Well, he didn't get to see the picture, which is a damn shame. But he did get to sign the contract for making the picture, which is okay. Well, I think he got to see bits. And, yeah. and, I think, and he's in it. And he's in the picture. To, to, uh, also, the profound... When he was young, he told me that a relative... He was pretty sure a relative was threatening his life. To go for, because for he being was... gay. To go from that... You know, moment in his life mm-hmm. to being celebrated for writing a play that even when it came out in the sixties was a, too much. was seen as uh, too real, too, too negative, much. too uh, about the dark side of being gay yeah. and and not fitting in and and being uh, full of remorse and self hatred and hiding that with dark humor and then to see that I remember him saying to me when it was on Broadway that he thought, oh my God, the play has become too much of a party. Uh, and but it, it is a party. It's set in a birthday party. But because he, he was also seeing, uh, you know, he had people from, we met a, a friend of his from college was at the play. And I think he was seeing all of those decades and mm-hmm. back to back. It truncated for 50 years. He back. was having to relive all of yeah. that. The, the, the denial, the violence, the, the, the fear, uh, the self-hatred, and then to see it being, uh, celebrated and still knowing that we're having to fight this every day, crazy regime that, uh, the Supreme court. Yeah. What not? Exactly. I mean, it's all of that together. And, I think that's why the play is still relevant. And the fact that they got a, a director, producers, uh, Ned Martell, uh, who uh, wrote, co-wrote the screenplay uh-huh. and produced it, um, Ryan Murphy, um, all of the, the cast are gay, and it's so important. You mean wildly different than 50 years ago? When... Yes. Yes. No, it's, it's a beautiful... And Mart, Mart is so w- very witty, <laughs> right? His writing is funny. Yeah, no, he's dead funny, and catty. It's just <laughs> hilarious. 
Um, give it a gaze if you can. It's on Netflix. It's called Boys in the Band. It won a Tony last year for Best Revival. And, uh, yes, full disclosure, we're friends with Mark Crowley. What can I tell you? He swung off well, in March. Yes. He swung off in March, but uh, it's so moving for us to have him still be in our hearts now with the picture. Isn't it? And to see him. Yes, to see him. To see him and again. He was, he was excited to have the cameo, and he was really thoughtful about what he was going to wear. And it, it was just, you know, what a beautiful thing. Um, yeah. I, I didn't, I thought that I'd have another 10 years of Mart. Uh, <laughs> and he seemed, you know, fit as a fiddle. Well, he was always ready for action. Right? There's no question of that. I, he exhausted I, me last I, year I was going to say, the problem with Mart was at 80-something, he had more energy than I did. <laughs> and I was going around the world touring, and he was still grinding you down with his, his activities. And yeah. His stories were, I mean, just the funniest. Mark Crowley. What? Let's uh, let's talk about uh, Johnny Nash, and yes, then please. let's please. What? Here's one. This sounds like Bob Marley, but he signed Bob Marley. So crystal clear. He's a dream bag. You said that he signed Bob Marley. He he went to, he had the forethought. He, he had been in movies as a teenager. Right. And then he formed a record company with his manager. Yeah. And they had the amazing idea to go to Jamaica because it was less expensive to record there. And when they got there, he signed... This is on the heels of, we were just talking about Bunny Striker Lee. Yeah. But uh, he signed... uh, Bob Marley. And the Whalers. Bunny Whaler and... Bunny Whaler and Peter Tosh. And Peter Tosh. He was from Houston. And uh, his partner, Danny Sims, and him... uh, Danny Sims said, Johnny taught Bob Marley how to sing on the mic, and they taught Johnny how to play the reggae rhythm. Right. There's a really cool vignette that you can watch on YouTube of Johnny Nash and Bob Marley went to London, and they couldn't get any radio airplay. Right. And, and by the way, Bob Marley wasn't famous then. It was Johnny who had hits. At all, right. And they were in a nightclub on Carnaby Street, mm-hmm. and they met an art teacher who was teaching at a school in Peckham. And he said, well, you know, why don't you come? If you can't get any airplay, why don't you come to my school? And, and it's a bunch of teenagers. Maybe they'll all buy your record. Mm-hmm. And he never thought that he'd see them again. And they showed up. And they did a set at a... Johnny Nash and Bob Marley. A school. Acoustic set. And then played footy with them, was it? Isn't that cute? Yes. It's just, it's really cool. That was in 1972. And it's also the year that I can see clearly now became a hit. 
how well I remember. Uh, Johnny Nash is a pivotal figure in American music. And having signed Bob Marley and all that, and having stirred up, which, by the way, was a giant hit for Johnny Nash, but also Bob Marley's great big hit. Um, He did more than any other American artist did for reggae. Right, and the movie that he was in as a teenager is called Take a Giant Step, and it's from 1959, and it was, I think, the first uh, mainstream movie about uh, a black, boy coming of age right it was him he's the lead ruby d ruby d um estelle hemsley who was nominated for a golden globe bia richards who was nominated for an oscar for guess who's coming to dinner um, yes and ruby d of course a civil rights activist and uh bia richards was a member and organizer of the american communist party ah. so wow so that's where he started from as a teenager then it's so interesting. Every, almost everyone knows that song. Yes. I can see clearly. Right. It's It's been across the decades an, an astonishing hit. I didn't know the breadth of his his career, the catholicity of his experience. And then he checked out, you know, after a long time of right, doing... Right, he went to Houston and he had horses. Right, uh, yeah. He had a ranch. He's a, Which reminds me of Booker T. Jones. Right? He's such a great uh, character, I think. Johnny Nash, his voice, his, his ethos, uh, uh, perpetuating reggae in the United States. Well, he's the person who did it. Right. It's such a risk taker. I know, right? Having a vision that that would work. Going to London with Bob Marley. Let's all do that. You've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. Jennifer's been the smartest woman in the world. May every page that you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that rings for you be a cool Papa Bell. And if you have to buy bonds. This is the greatest single of all time. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. Only tears of a clown. 